0: Welcome to episode 28 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Latke and my co-host, Steve Sabin will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the Riedel Hall incursion, Hong Kong and the national security law, Russia and Afghanistan, and peace talks on Kosovo. Our feature interview is with Christian Breed, Deputy Director at the Queen's Center for International and Defense Policy and Associate Professor at the Royal Military College. At the very end of the show, you'll find Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how are you doing? Eve, I'm well. We're both back after an extended Canada Day break, and I'm happy to maybe start with an announcement that as of July 1st, I've returned to the Center for International and Defense Policy as the director. And I think our timing is pretty good because today we are featuring our interview with the center's deputy director, Christian Breed. And other than that, I'm surviving heat. I'm trying to stay cool without aircon here in Kingston. I suppose you're feeling the same heat wave in Ottawa, Steve?
1: Yes, but we've got air conditioning, so it's not too bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, Having grown up in, in hot, sweaty American cities, I've always invested in houses that have air conditioning. So, uh, I've we've got invested
0: into... in a thick limestone wall. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, we're doing okay up here. We actually we drove in your general direction this past weekend. We went to Perth as yeah. part of the... Sademan excursion program over the summer since we can't be in South Africa, which is where I'd be right now if things hadn't gone the way they got went. We are visiting various small towns in the greater o- Ottawa area. And so I went to find the Perth Pie Company so I could have some Pie, and then we walked around a watershed a little bit and didn't get too badly bitten by mosquitoes. So that was our, our big adventure. But I'm sure there are many mosquitoes in your future since you're going camping.
0: Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> Still in denial. Now we're at two camping trips planned, taking uh, some holiday with, with the family. But what I do enjoy about camping is the digital holiday, just being completely disconnected from email uh, really does me a world of good.
1: I don't know what that would be like. <laughs> I get angry when my, I lose Wi-Fi for an hour. Speaking of inconveniences, what a segue. This past week, while we were doing other things, we had an intruder at Rideau Hall by the name of Corey Hurin, who happens to be a reservist in the Canadian Armed Forces. It was disturbing on its own right that somebody tried to run through the gates of where the governor general and the prime minister reside, although they were not there that day. But is it even more disturbing that he had a bunch of guns in his vehicle and he happened to belong to the Canadian Armed Forces? What were your reactions to this when you heard about it?
0: Yeah, the immediate reaction, I suppose, is why did this small business owner from Manitoba land in Ottawa with four weapons early in the morning to threaten the Prime Minister? I don't think we know too much yet about the the motives. Uh, We have a rough timeline of events as they unfolded starting early in the morning, and it seems to have been a two hour ordeal. In which RCMP members were apparently able to de-escalate the situation but yeah you're absolutely right this adds to the pile of events that have unfolded since the recording of our last episodes and that the Canadian Armed Forces has had to deal with so there's this incident uh, and of course the CAF will continue to collaborate with the RCMP on the investigation the CAF has had to address racist incidents in the force uh, there's been a cyber attack on the Royal Military College of Canada and a COVID-19 scare with a plane full of service members bound for Latvia. So it's definitely been a busy couple of weeks when we look back at what is on the CAF's radar. What were your thoughts?
1: Well, first, this happened a day after there was a demonstration in in Ottawa on on Parliament Hill, and I also think by the American Embassy, by folks who are fairly right-wing extremist types. And one thing that was spotted was this guy's uh, internet presences, social media presence had various ties or references to QAnon, which is what used to be a joke, but is now wild, very disturbing that there's these conspiracy theorists out there that have all the most wild imaginations about conspiracies, about pedophilia and American political elites. And this shows that this is not just a, a group of people online complaining to each other about whatever their fever dreams are. But it's become a political movement. There's more than a handful of candidates in the Republican primaries that have won that stage of, of the election process at local levels and also at the congressional level who uh, espouse QAnon theories and have these you know dark conspiracy theories about the world. And now we see that it's spread to Canada because we have a guy who was clearly QAnon curious, if not radicalized by QAnon, come to the Capitol Bring with him a bunch of guns, and RCMP reports that he issued threats to you know towards uh, Trudeau. So these things are a little bit more contagious than we would like. And while the conspiracy theories themselves are just so ridiculous that they seem funny, mm-hmm. they have real consequences. It does reflect, as you suggested, this of something that the military has been taking much more attention to. One of the new minds that is D&D's outreach program, they have a new network dedicated to hateful conduct because this is one of the priorities of, of General Vance and of the military of trying to figure out how to deal with right-wing extremism within the CAF. And this is yet another example, a, a different example, not from here, but from elsewhere, is that Germany just disbanded one of its most elite special forces units because it seemed to be infested with right-wing extremists. And the Germans jump on that stuff very quickly, of course, because they have their very bad history. And so this is not just a Canadian thing. It's a a problem around the world. And so the, the Canadian forces have to do a better job of recruitment to make sure these folks don't get in, of dealing with these folks once they're in and getting them back out, because there's a desire on the part of these individuals to get military training so that way they can use it afterwards. Not unlike what happened with Timothy McVeigh and Get forget Nichols' first name, from the Oklahoma City bombing of the mid-1990s. This is not a new thing, but it seems to be getting uh, more momentum lately.
0: Yeah, and and this individual was part of of the Rangers, and they are not provided basic training, uh, but it seems like he had been in the military, in artillery, much earlier on in in his life.
1: Yeah, it sounds like he did like one, what is the word, rotation term, in the military, then think him out as a reservist, and... We don't really know what his history in the Rangers is, but we'll know more over time. On a very different note, we've had this strange uh, event where the Russians have put bounties on American soldiers in Afghanistan, paying the Taliban to kill Americans. And that's rebounded in American politics, mostly because it turns out that Trump was briefed about this either months ago or further back than that and hasn't done anything about it. And my first reaction to this, is of hearing about the, the Russians supporting proxies against the Americans, is well, this isn't that big of a deal because the Americans used to support proxies against the Russians. The United States used to support what the Mujahideen in Afghanistan when it was the Soviet Union involved in Afghanistan. And great powers often support proxies against other great powers. But I think the big difference between what's going on in the past six months or so and what went on in the 1980s is I don't think you saw Ronald Reagan calling Gorbachev, this leader of the Soviet Union, every couple months without anybody else on the phone line trying to improve Russia's position in various organizations and all the rest. With Trump, his relationship with Putin has always been suspect, and he's been not trying to penalize Russia, but trying to reward Russia for the past two or three years, and lately pushing to try to get the Russians back into the G8. So I think that's what people find really disturbing, not so much the actual Russia doing this kind of thing, because it's kind of expected in international relations, but it's more the the, the American reaction. What has your take been on this stuff?
0: Yeah, it, it's obviously disturbing that Trump seems to have downplayed this from the start. Uh, a new memo came out uh, which casts doubt on the evidence and, and seems to have been politicized after calls from Congress to, to look into this further. It's weird to see the Kremlin and the White House once again aligned when it comes to voicing denials, that the Kremlin would want to deny this fine and it's expected. But Trump calling this a hoax and fake news tales is- it's just, uh, I suppose at this point, we're not to be surprised, but it's, it's uh, another disappointment. He's also denying that he was briefed earlier this year by uh, then National Security Advisor John Bolton. So I'm sure that we'll hear uh, more and more about this. I'm not sure if it's in the book. Have you read the book yet?
1: I have not read John Bolton's book, no. It's not at the top of my list of things to read. Maybe Mary Trump's book is on the top of my list of books to read. His, I guess, niece, I think, will have more interesting things to say. I think John Bolton has done a really good job of discrediting himself. I'm sure a lot of stuff John, in Bolton's book are true, but a lot of it has already been leaked in other ways, whereas Mary Trump's views about what the Trump family is like from the inside, hmm. I think that's you know appeals to our fixation to get the juicy inside stuff. But going back to Bolton, yeah, he, he, I mean, it was clear that uh, the story was probably leaked by him in the first place. And I do think it's an important story. The, the, what it matters now is it becomes more meat for the, campaigns for the election running up into the November. The Republicans who are against Trump have used it pretty powerfully in some of their ads, basically calling Trump a traitor. I think that matters. I don't know how much it's going to affect the actual election, but I think it goes to the larger suspicion we've had ever since Trump was elected the f- four years ago, that the Russians really, really want him to win. And, and that should have tainted his, his standing before the election in 2016 and certainly is, is it matters now.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that you're, you're right, based on how you described these events earlier, this whole story serves to illustrate how other great powers are assertively staking mm-hmm. their ground in Central Asia in the wake of the U.S.-Taliban deal that was announced mm-hmm. in February. Also disturbing is the timing mm-hmm. of some of these reports, so this means that the, the whole bounty thing was being shared with the Trump administration at the same time that they were negotiating with the Taliban on on this uh, this deal that uh, is leading to the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, this is a real challenge because you always have to negotiate with bad guys in order to end these civil wars. But to have the folks you're, you're dealing with being egged on by the Russians at the same time really shows a, a real lack of American leverage or at least willingness to use leverage over the past several months. This is a problem, not just for here, because usually the United States is, can be seen as, as an intermediary between the Indians and the Chinese. And we have a border conflict between India and China it has been stirring and, and escalating in ways that are d- very disturbing to us. And there's not any American leadership to try to provide good offices to try to settle this thing. There's just no will and there's no credibility for the United States to play that role that it used to play.
0: Yeah, and speaking of American leadership, another story that I was uh, tracking last week was, and of course it got canceled, but the planned visit to the White House by Kosovo president uh, Thatchi and uh, Serbian president Vucic. And so this was seen as an opportunity for Trump to maybe have a foreign policy victory in in supporting peace talks between the two presidents. But because Thatchi was indicted of war crimes and crimes against humanity by a special Kosovo court in the Hague at the same time, the meeting was simply canceled. So again, here, you know, timing is everything. It's hard to believe that the timing of this indictment was coincidental. Uh, European officials were not so keen on these U.S.-led peace talks. Uh, Macron and Merkel, along with other European leaders, are set to meet with uh, the two presidents in in July for their own round of talks. So with all of this unfolding uh, last week, they have sort of reclaimed their lead on the peace talks, I suppose. So, yeah, another blow to American leadership there as well.
1: And I guess one of the reasons why the peace talks were unpopular was it was it was looking like it was going to be a land swap that Serbia and Kosovo were to engage in that would sort of reward people who seize territories. And, and this is not something that Trump has really cared about, but it's something that the Europeans care about, particularly how fragile the Helsinki Accords have been in the aftermath of the Russian seizing Crimea. So I, I can see why the Europeans would be upset about more sanctioning of, of land swaps without any kind of real legal process going on. So I think log- there's a larger context here. There many different things are intersecting between Trump's relationship with the Russians, the Americans no longer quite being so supportive of international norms, and the Europeans trying to figure out a, a, a new way forward where they can't always rely on the United States.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the EU facilitated negotiations uh, were a decade in, in the making and have been going on, for some time. So for the US to just swoop in without consulting with European allies, I think, you know, upset a lot of folks, uh, obviously.
1: Yeah, so we did get one question about China and Hong Kong, which is, Edward April Dousseau asked us about the decision by Canada halt sensitive exports to Hong Kong and was wondering if this is going to be a big blow to Canada's defense defense industry, he noted that there wasn't much discussion of which technologies were being exported to Hong Kong. I don't think you or I really know what the details of existing sales of, of technology to Hong Kong were, but I do think that this new Hong Kong national security law is really going to reshape much of the world's relationship with China. We're now in a situation where the original deal that China negotiated with Hong Kong is, is seems to be dead. And now everybody's having to realize that Hong Kong is no longer to be treated like the semi-independent, quasi-statelet that it once was. And is now just going to be a, a mere province of China.
0: Yeah, it's devastating for the state of democracy in Hong Kong. Its status as a global financial hub. And I think everyone's coming to terms with the fact that for countries like Canada and its closest allies... US, Australia, UK have just not been successful in applying the kind of pressure that could have persuaded China to change course, because we've seen this unfolding in slow motion for some time. I think now for for us, I think what's interesting about this, uh, because we've already talked about why the law is problematic, I think it's time to talk about what countries are going to do about it and, mm-hmm. and you've mentioned the, the changing nature of the relationship with hong kong and we've seen a, a series of targeted responses by the us we've seen of course the uk's response that has been to offer close to three million hong kong residents in possession of a british national overseas passport a path to british citizenship and for canada you mentioned that. Uh, halting up sensitive exports to Hong Kong there's a suspension of its extradition treaty and yeah we're going to see this transition to treating uh, Hong Kong like mainland China so it's not uh, the, the moves that we're seeing in response to this i don't see if we're going to see a change course of action we're not looking to reverse uh, this and i don't think anyone has the ability to to reverse this so what are the options moving forward beyond these targeted measures in direct response to the passing of this law
1: well, that's a good question. I think the one thing that's being discussed is whether we are going to follow the UK and maybe Australia in taking more Hong Kong refugees, essentially, Well, we'll open our doors to, to having a flow of people coming in from Hong Kong resettling in Canada. Now that raises questions about whether they'll be allowed to leave and raises questions in Canada about that. I think most experts on immigration have, have said that Canada has plenty of room to grow, but I'm not sure what other measures we have on the table because we're just the asymmetry between us and and China is so steep. Us refusing to sell stuff to China is not going to hurt us as much as as them not buying our stuff, frankly. So I'm not exactly sure what what tools there are that are left in the toolbox. Do you have any suggestions?
0: I wish I did. I'm just... growing impatient with with the statements like uh, Champagne when he says, we want to see how the law is going to be interpreted and applied. And I just think that this wait and see approach has proven all of our worst assumptions to be true. Uh, Even if we coordinate with regional allies and partners, what credible options are on the table so long as the Trump administration continues to surprise its allies with inconsistent foreign policy moves and and continues to turn a blind eye to China's human rights record. So if it's difficult to align ourselves to the U.S. on the very basics, how can we ever hope to have the coordinated response that a country like Canada needs to, to pursue a specific foreign policy action, like what is needed in this case?
1: That's exactly the problem. And November can't happen soon enough and January can't happen soon enough to try. You know, I, a lot of people are saying that things won't completely shift back to normal if there's a Biden administration. But I do think that uh, a new administration would be a much easier playmate for exactly these kinds of things. Biden's likely secretary of state, national security advisor, his, his foreign relations team would be very familiar to Canadians that, you know, a lot of people with roots to the Obama administration. So I think that they could hit the ground running to try to rejigger some of these things and get the United States to be back in international relations in a, in a, in a meaningful way. But, you know, there's no certainty that, that Trump's going to lose the election. There's no certainty that the election will, will actually, I think it's going to happen, but it, it might be so tainted by the pandemic and by Trump's efforts to delegitimate it that, that we may have a real struggle in the fall. But I do think that. Part of what Canada has to do is is it has to wait a little while longer to figure out what the future is going to be. I know people can't stand to hear that, but Canada can't act on its own, and Europe can only do so much. And they don't usually look to us as a as a playmate. You know, we could try to do a better job of of linking ourselves to the Japanese and the and the Europeans and try to come to common positions on this. But it, again, it's really hard when the the major player is basically breaking up everything that we try to do
0: probably a good time to end the episode and transition into the uh, feature interview with Christian Breed from uh, the Royal Military College, who is also the Deputy Director of the Center for International and Defense Policy. And you have an r segment after that?
1: Yes, it's a mix of seriousness and silliness. So I think it'll be uh, in keeping with the rest of the tone of today's episode. Okay, well, be safe out there in the wilderness. And I look forward to talking to you when you get back.
0: Talk to you soon, Steve. Bye. Christian, it's good to finally have you on Battle Rhythm. How are you?
2: I'm good. Stephanie, this is a a thrill. I've uh, been listening to your podcast uh, since it dropped. It's been neat to see it evolve and grow and I was hoping for an opportunity to come on and, and talk about something at some point, because uh, a lot of what you guys cover is, is stuff that I'm very much interested in. And I think I think it's important what you're doing. And I'm really thrilled to see that it's, it seems to be successful. So, so thank you for the opportunity.
0: Well, it's funny to be meeting virtually like this, because we work very closely together. In fact, we've even shared an office, but yeah. we've all had to adapt the way that we work in this pandemic crisis environment. So let me start just by asking you how you've adapted things ever since we're confined to our homes. And and usually, I'll just specify this for our listeners, but you split your time between the Royal Military College of Canada, the Centre for International Defence Policy, and the Department of Political Studies. You wear multiple hats. So how have you managed to transition that from your home office?
2: I wouldn't claim to have managed it. I think what I'm doing is is surviving it. First off, I just want to acknowledge that I'm you know, eternally grateful that I can continue to work in this new environment. I think uh, we're very lucky and we need to, you know, acknowledge that and and give pause to that. So with that, being said, it's it's tough to be sure. We're balancing work along with trying to maintain the education of our three young kids. You know, you know what that's like with with your family as mm-hmm. well. And it's it's a constant battle. Both my wife and I are fortunate that we can, you know, try to to maintain some of our work efforts as well. But it definitely has to take in some cases a backseat or at least get done on the fringes of life, as I've been told. And that seems to really typify what life is like right now. There's no routine. It's kind of ugly. It's kind of messy. And we're just kind of getting it done when we can and if we can. And you know, being able to carve out some time right now, for example, to, uh, to talk to you about this stuff is, uh, is great, but takes some careful management and preparation too. So maybe if, if nothing else, if people can maybe take solace in the fact that that's the normal. It's not this, uh, this beautiful, serene, new routine where everything just kind of works and everything clicks and everything's in flow. There, there's no flow. And I think that's okay right now.
0: I can certainly relate to that. And you have three kids. I only have two. So if we get interrupted (laughs) during this interview, I completely understand. And they're more than welcome to participate. (laughs) we're here to talk about your new edited volume today. It was published with UBC Press. It's called Culture and the Soldier Identities, Values, and Norms in Military Engagement. Congratulations.
2: Thank you very much. Yeah, I was thrilled, but uh, really it was a team effort and you were no small part of that team, given that you have a contribution in the book as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about later.
0: And another feature of this book and other projects is how we're usually able to bring both academics and practitioners to the table. And this project was not different in that respect. Uh, We did a special issue, which was published a bit earlier, and then this book came out. And then the the real central question of the book is, how does culture matter for the military? And in the introduction, you introduced this notion of the culture puzzle. I was wondering if we could start a little bit with that. Why is it so important for military institutions to understand it?
2: Sure. Well, for me, the the, the culture puzzle kind of breaks down into, into four basic questions. You know, the first question is, is how is it important? The second question comes down to measurement. So how do we measure this thing? Then I ask as well, you know, how has it been employed by the military and how does it shape the military? And in terms of shaping the military, what I mean there is like, how does it actually change outcomes in terms of what the military does? And so taken together, those, those four questions kind of consolidate into what we call the culture puzzle. And I always think back to some of my, you know, experiences in uniform as we would know, go through cultural awareness training and anticipation of deploying to places that were very different from where we grew up and where we would call home, whether it's Haiti or Afghanistan in my experience or now in contemporary conditions such as you know Iraq or or, uh, or Eastern Europe or places like that. And at the end of the day, what all of this really comes down to is the fact that I find that we we don't do cultural awareness, even just the name cultural awareness kind of seems a little bit giving it, you know, short shrift. And in my own personal experience, the, the cultural awareness training was very much a, an adjunct to everything else we were doing. An afternoon, maybe of, of time spent during our pre-deployment training. And that was really it. And it was certainly valuable, but it certainly didn't do it justice. You know, we always say that you know, if anyone sort of looks at what culture is, it's this idea of, you know, values and ideas and identities that. Are replicated over time that's really hard to grapple in an afternoon and so to then take that very deep and rich concept and then figure out how does that shape the military as well as how does the military use that was really the essence of what drove this volume forward and why we, we felt it was important and so it comes down to like I said those four questions of how is it important how do we measure it how has it been employed, and how does it shape what we do in the military and drive our, our pursuit of outcomes so that's really the the, the puzzle and you know, again, from an academic perspective, culture is something that's talked about equally, you know, richly and vibrantly, but also at the same time, it sort of becomes almost like the the third category of things. You know, if it's not rational choice, if it's not structure, well, then it must be culture. And then we kind of move on. We don't, it, it, you know, just studies that really do, that try to dive into the culture side of whether it's international relations, security studies, or even defense policy, really struggle with these 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 questions that typify the culture puzzle. Rational choice and structural arguments are, are much much more clear cut and straightforward to to wrap our heads around, but culture becomes becomes messy and muddy, and, and that's the, the the terrain into which this book waited.
0: And you referred to your operational experience in Afghanistan and Haiti just now, and, and you also mentioned it in the book, but there are really two proposed frameworks to understand culture and why it matters. The first one is linked to organizational culture, meaning mm-hmm. how militaries are organized internally and how they conduct their day-to-day business. And the second one is tied to culture as a variable in the context mm-hmm. of military operation. Yep. Um, again, drawn from your experience in in Haiti and Afghanistan. I'm sure that provided a lot of inspiration for the book. So what are some of the lessons that the Canadian Armed Forces could take away from the book for its activities at home or abroad?
2: A lot of this uh, finds its way into the chapter I, I contributed towards the end of the book on social license to operate. And that was an interesting chapter to write. Again, you know, you cued me to looking at the the literature on SLO from corporate social responsibility as seeing a potential uh, linkage there, which I thought was really cool. So, you know, thanks again for that too. But this builds a lot on my, my earlier research in social capital and state cohesion. What I found interesting with the way in which the military or some of the lessons that the military could take forward was that. You know, this isn't in entirely new. This idea of you know looking at the cultural aspect in terms of how militaries can leverage that for their advantage. We do it with SIMIC operators. So this is the uh, civil-military cooperation uh, units that we had in Afghanistan from my time. You know, and of course I, I'm also mindful of the fact that my experience uh, in the military is is getting dated. It's it's going on almost uh, well, more than 10 years now since I've been on the operational side of things. And so I do apologize if some of these terms are a little a little out of date. But from my experience as a as a junior infantry officer, you know, working with SIMIC and particular. They were sort of our cultural conduit or our conduit to understanding the cultures of communities within the military. We started to see some alignment with uh, folks from Global Affairs Canada back then. It was known as DFAT, or Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. And they had some specialists on cultural dynamics that we had to understand, in, especially in a place like Afghanistan. We also started to get into the habit of deploying cultural advisors into military operations to try to you know act as interpreters, if you will, of, of what the dynamics were uh, whether they're tribal, interpersonal, political, what have you, that commanders on the ground could benefit from and leverage for their, their advantage. But you'll see here that everything that we're, that we're discussing really talks about this idea of how can the military use culture to their advantage. And where I thought the social license to operate literature was really interesting. And again, going back to the social capital stuff about you know, looking at bonding and bridging social capital as, as cues for maybe some or some heuristics to help us understand and differences within societies and different given communities and places like that, that we also have to be willing to adapt how we engage with these folks. It's not just a one way street. And so the cultural realities on the ground should actually shape the way in which we do operations as opposed to us simply trying to exploit the existing dynamics. And so that's where the social license to operate concept comes in and sort of departs from things like command authority, which have been written about before, particularly in the UK literature, in, uh, in defense policy and doctrinal studies of, of how culture impacts military decision making. So I was looking for more of a, a give and take, more of a, a systems approach of, of, of uh, one of dynamism where what the military observes on the ground actually shifts and changes how the military will, will do things. And then what the model I proposed in the book suggests is that this actually can change within a the theater of operations, depending on which community you're looking at. Certain communities, and this is, again, with the, with the social capital heuristics become really useful. Communities that are more tightly, tightly knit, more inwardly looking, require a certain approach versus communities that are more outwardly looking, more, um, or more inclusive in their, in their attitudes and perceptions. That requires a separate approach. And this, a lot of this comes from the policing literature. So there was that sort of connection of all these different bodies of literature together that formed that chapter. That I thought was kind of interesting and, and worth exploring. And that's how it found its way into the book, because that was really the one that I think sort of talked about, sort of particular how military planners could start to think differently about how they see culture on the battle space. It's really not just something to be leveraged, but it's something that actually will shape and change the way you do operations and the way you plan out an operation. I don't know if that helps.
0: Yeah, it does. And and I really have to, to congratulate you as well in terms of the number of angles that are introduced in the book and here both again on the internal piece the more organizational culture piece and the more operational aspects i'm I'm thinking back on on reading the book and having been part of the workshop but i recall stephanie belanger's chapter on Mm -hmm. some of the linguistic divides within the Armed Forces. I can think about Alan Okros and Vanessa Brown's chapter on the whole journey of cultural reform
2: yeah.
0: and their integration in the military. Really the range of topics that are covered in this edited volume is quite remarkable. But right now I'll ask you a very difficult question okay. and for a moment to play favorites and ask you what your favorite chapter was and why.
2: All right. Well, that is, that is an unfair question. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of difficult because I'd have to actually make a decision. I'm, I'm going to play the academic card and actually give you a, a couple uh, of my favorites, but for different reasons. So depending on how we define favorite. The one that I find I've assigned the most often to my students... Is the Brown and Okros chapter on uh, loose gender identity? There are chapters called "Dancing Around Gender," and I found I was actually I had to reach out to Al Okros on the side before the book even went to press to ask permission if I could, you know, share early versions of their working paper, which was going to become the chapter because I found it so timely, especially when it was written right after the Deschamps report. It's probably one of the first really sort of rigorous, introspective looks at the Canadian Armed Forces post Deschamps when the Marie Deschamps report came out, which caused a lot of, and quite rightly, a lot of internal analysis and introspection in terms of how we think about how we do business in the Canadian Armed Forces from the perspective of military culture. And you know, what is our military culture? Is it healthy? Is it one that we need to you know, look at and, and assess and, and change? And if we have to change it, you know, what do we change? Because early suggestions were very, very drastic, very whole, you know, sort of, we need to change everything and nothing is good. And one of the things I really liked about the Brown and Ocrose chapter was they they took a very sobering look and said, okay, no, there's elements here that we need to retain and we can be dynamic, very much like You know, sounds a lot of echoes of what we were just talking about before with respect to how the military can employ culture overseas. You know, it depends. It's varied. There needs to be flexibility. There needs to be nuance and and layers to how we think about military culture as well. There isn't one single military culture. It's a lot what uh, Brown and Okros talk about in their chapters. So I've assigned that a lot in my courses. So in that respect, in terms of utility, I find that's probably one of them. Another one that I really like just for the, the share, almost novelty of it is, are the two chapters, one by Stephanie Belanger and the other by uh, Andy Bellier, both who come at it from a lit- uh, English in one case and French in the other a literature studies perspective. You know, Stephanie, as we already talked about, she talks about these sort of, these two subcultures within the Canadian Armed Forces, one Francophone, one Anglophone, which I think is really instructive. And, and that's a, there's a huge amount of content analysis and discourse analysis that, and, and interviews, in fact, that went into that chapter. And, you know, she was very kind to, to share that with us and, and have our book as the home for that. And Andy Bellier's piece, uh, also looking at this culture and this question of home and belonging, which is, again, a part of bigger part of his uh, or a small part of his bigger research project. He looked at this idea of cultural dislocation, how our ability to connect with home constantly actually made things harder on us as deployed soldiers. And that really resonated with me, again, from my personal experience. I remember when I was deployed to Haiti, I could talk to my loved ones back home maybe once or twice a month. And that was tough. But in Afghanistan, I could talk to them almost every day. And I think that made it harder. I really do. And I think that's a really interesting piece that he put forward that sort of shows that 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 idea of, you know, if we're constantly jumping between cultures, it makes it really hard to to stay grounded and stay rooted. So that was a really interesting piece, too. So yeah, it, it's hard for me to pick a favorite because I think they're all really good depending on yeah. the lens. I'm, I'm pulling the other uh, defense policy field course for one of our PhD candidates in war studies right now. And I'm finding the just about the entire book is useful because it gives such a diverse range of perspectives on defense policy from a completely different angle. And, I, and you mentioned the diversity. And I want to highlight that because I'm thrilled by the fact that we've got you know English professors, like like literature professors, we've got anthropologists, professional military soldiers, political scientists like yourself and myself, got historians like it's, it's fantastic and, and really coming from from all different walks of life and it was one of the strengths that the reviewers mentioned about the book too so yeah I just want to highlight the the diversity both of, of voices and of topics I think is really powerful and that we were able to pull it together into a cohesive volume I think
0: was 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 pretty cool big shout out to the contributors and of course I'm yeah, sure yeah. as soon as we get a book Done. The question that we get asked is what comes next. And I don't know for you if after a special issue and an edited volume, you will keep on doing research with culture as the main analytical lens. But I'm sure that you have more inspiration or new questions that are coming out of this particular project.
2: I do for sure. It's, uh, you know, this has been something that I did certainly didn't set out to look at uh, the question culture and, and military operations when I, when I started down the, the route of the PhD and when I started you know, finding out what do I want to do now that I've got the, the, the dissertation in the can, you know, what's my next project? I, I sort of stumbled upon it and it became a natural a natural fit for me given some of how I like to, to put a, a practical bend on a lot of my research. So one of the things that, this, that has, has started after this is some work I'm doing with Al English and uh, Rob Engen on uh, combat motivation. And that's another book that's coming out, I think, in the next couple months with McGill-Queens University Press. Mm-hmm. and uh, I co-edited that with with those two gentlemen as well, and I've also got a chapter that I co-wrote with Karen Davis on the idea of the, the warrior culture, which was this sort of, so we talk about sort of progression and, and, and evolution of my thinking in, in terms of culture and military. That was the next step. The chapter that Karen and I wrote was intensely personal, but also very, very helpful, and I think we we put the bar forward. It's another one that I've sort of shared with a, with a few folks that are, are working on this, and they've, they found it useful, but it was personal because it... Uh, It was something that I almost needed to write and it helped me make sense of some of my own experiences Uh, and working with Karen on it helped me pull it out of the personal and into the more analytic and and academic and sort of show one that i I I'm not off base in my own struggles with, with, with what I found with respect to being a warrior overseas and also to what that means for for what we're facing now in the military, whether it's uh, challenges with post-traumatic stress disorder or, in fact, the suicide issues we're having. And so that chapter kind of pulls it all together in a really interesting way. So that's sort of where we went with there. But I think the other part that's really interesting that we're worth pursuing is is what you raised in the conclusion of the book, which is this idea of trying to figure out some indicators. Mm-hmm. And sort of answering that, that, that one key question in the culture puzzle that I don't think we do maybe fully justice to in the book, which is measuring. And I think you do a really good job in that conclusion of pulling out some ways and a, and a framework that we can use to, to take that next step. Can I sort of throw the ball back in your court and ask you to Mm -hmm. elaborate on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, well, I think that framework was useful for providing a template and situate the individual contributions of, of each chapter because it's true that they highlight various dimensions of culture. And although initially the drive was to really break it down in terms of organizational culture and culture as a variable in operations, I think that it's helpful to break that down in terms of more specific factors. And that also helps in the exercise of, of comparison. And what helped me in writing this conclusion is coming up with with new research questions of my own. And I just wanted to credit you for a a recent publication that came out in Armed Forces and Society, because a lot of the discussions that took place in the context of of this project, which became your edited volume, really helped me in better understanding the linkages between strategic culture and military culture. We use the case study of Afghanistan to sort of understand how NATO put out this guidance, this strategic Guidance, but then when you have a multinational alliance, this strategic direction that is provided by the alliance is then filtered through the military culture of all of these different allies, leading to different outcomes on the ground. And and what we use to illustrate this dynamic is the provincial reconstruction teams comparing the German PRTs with the Canadian PRT, and then trying to understand why they look so different on the ground looking at those cultural variables seeing how strategic culture and military culture interact so for me you know my participation in the workshop and in this book really help with this spin-off project, if I can call it that, uh, and this uh, article with uh, Bastian Gigerich. Uh, the other thing for me that I know I'll, I'll keep referring back to this framework, whether framework in in the conclusion or just the broader sort of analytical guidance that you provide in the edited volume, is really in terms of how it applies to my research on, on NATO, because I, I really think that there is a dual cultural challenge. They're always present for NATO in terms of its missions. Managing the multinational dimension within NATO. So understanding how those 30 different member states can work together and then understanding the local cultural realities in host countries where they have to operate together. So there's there are two layers really of potential cultural barriers. And I think that your edited volume can really be useful for NATO scholars in in getting some analytical anchoring for, for these types of studies. And the other thing that I, in terms of a new question, I suppose, that comes to me when rereading this edited volume is this whole question of, cultural awareness as part of military training or more specifically Mm -hmm. pre-deployment training because i think we all know intuitively that it is very important to get at least baseline knowledge on new cultures but then how then this knowledge is introduced becomes the the tricky part you mentioned in your introduction uh, human terrain and how controversial it was so Mm -hmm. this was basically deploying social sciences alongside the military to help them better understand Uh, local communities and then the other way of doing this is sort of the death by powerpoint approach which is a lot more superficial where you know as part of the pre-deployment training package you introduce some cultural knowledge before people are sent off in theater so i mean those are two different extremes i'm wondering how can we get it right it's somewhere between the two
2: yeah that's a that's a great question and that that really is almost in many ways like the the billion dollar question because we get that piece right that will make i think just life easier for everybody involved it will make the and actually it's interesting as, as i sort of think about it it will not only will it make the outcomes easier to achieve but it'll actually will, will create the correct outcomes which i think is a big part of the problem too is, is this this really becomes you know it's almost like the shaky foundation argument you know if the if the cultural understanding of the area of operations in which we're deploying is wrong or misguided everything else is going to fall apart We're not going to set the right objectives. We're not going to engage with the right people. We're not going to do the right things. You know, we might do things really, really well, but it'll be irrelevant because it's all wrong because we've got that cultural understanding wrong. So I think, I think what the answer is, again, you know, it's, it's yes to everything, but it becomes about targeting, you know, who gets what. And so the rich cultural understanding that we're maybe demanding of, uh, of our commanders and that we were trying to achieve with things like deploying human terrain systems and deploying cultural advisors into theater. That's really at the, at the planning stages, that's where that needs to be engaged with and needs to be almost continuous where you need to develop almost area experts. And I think in, in many ways what the Americans were trying to do with their combatant commands was trying to tap into some of that. From the soldier's perspective, I think in, we don't wanna do the superficial stuff. And I'll tell you a little story about that if, if I may diverge mm. from that and, and sort of digress I mean. I was on a patrol in Afghanistan with uh, four or five vehicles with a lead vehicle rolling through downtown Kandahar city and as we're going through the, the downtown core, we see in front of us, the road is just littered with Persian rugs or Afghans, I guess they would have been called it. We, it was that sort of that style of rug mm-hmm. just laid on the street, you know, for basically people just driving over them. And my driver rightly pointed out, hey, you know, he was nervous. He was concerned about this. And this, is, this could be something that's hiding you know, potentially an improvised explosive device. This is the kind of thing that we were warned about that they will... You use detritus on the ground to conceal a, a main charge or a trigger mechanism that we might be unfortunate enough to, to drive over. And so you got pretty upset and pretty nervous and started slowing down. And, and I was looking at this and, and, you know, this and it's totally by, by accident or by happenstance that I remember my father who spent months of his professional life, you know, decades ago when he was an archaeologist. Months and months at a time in, in Iran doing uh, fieldwork for the Royal Ontario Museum. And I remember him telling me, because our house was filled with, with Persian rugs, which was kind of cool, that he picked up in Tehran and the markets around there. And he was telling me the process through which these rugs were made. And this final step, because they're all hand knotted, the final step, once they're, the knotting is complete, is to throw them on the street and get cars to drive over them,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which he thought was ridiculous. But what it does is it tightens the knots and it's sort of the finishing process of these rugs. And that's all these guys were doing. They wanted us to drive over them. So I tell my driver this story and he, he kind of calms down and we drive over them. There's no incident. And so just that little bit of extra mm-hmm. context can go a long way to understanding the, the battle space. Now, I fully appreciate that this could have totally gone sideways for me and it could have been in fact something concealing an improvised explosive device, but more often than not what we found in Afghanistan is these things probably were the way they seemed and not everyone is trying to was trying to, to to kill you. And again, it comes from that understanding of the culture. They just didn't want us around. They didn't care. They wanted us to move on and leave them leave them alone. So the question then becomes how do we inculcate that at the tactical level? How do we get our drivers, our crew commanders, our patrol commanders to have that kind of intuitive knowledge. And this is a great answer from an academic. It's, it's education and it's continuous education. It's not maybe necessarily education on a particular culture, but it's an education on the, on the question of culture more generally. And so the understanding I think that would have helped a lot is if we'd gone into Afghanistan, knowing that not that we know stuff, but knowing the depth to which we don't know things. And so when we're actually engaging with locals, we're, we're, we're curious and we're inquisitive as opposed to thinking we know the answer or on the flip side, revolted and and terrified of what we're seeing because we think we know the answer. And so that might be at the tactical level, something we could try to inculcate in our soldiers is, is build a curiosity uh, on the understanding that, you know, culture is a layered and nuanced concept that takes a lifetime to master and understand, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, you know, as, as well as anyone speaking multiple languages, that's how you get to learn a culture, mm. you know, is to learn the language. And we can't ask our soldiers to become fluent in the language of the country they're about to deploy into. That's not going to happen. But we can teach them a basic appreciation for how rich a culture can be and to ask the right questions. And I think that might be the approach. So bottom line up front, it's, it's, it's just improved education. And that's something that can be done, you know, a little bit at a time over a continuous basis, but it takes investment in our education systems. And to have that, you know, we put as part of professional military education, we roll that in and take it as seriously as we do our training.
0: And you mentioned sharing some war stories with your students. Can you tell us what your most memorable moment is when you think back on your military career?
2: There's a couple though that do stick out. And one is just how... Sort of taking a, almost like a hundred thousand foot level and sort of reflect back on my career from, you know, when I joined the forces in 1998 as a, you know, right at of high school, heading off to RMC, thinking I'm going to change the world to where I am now. This is not at all where I intended to be. I'm thrilled to be here. And I, I you know, very fortunate and actually love it. But the path was so not what I had set out for. Mm. And so I think one of the biggest lessons, and I still have to relearn this, you know, almost eight, almost every day is, you know, don't fight the plan, have a plan, but be willing to adapt and don't close your mind or your eyes to, to opportunity. And for me, I joined in 1998 with every intention of becoming a combat engineer. I was going to study mechanical engineering and be a combat engineer. And that was my plan. And uh, you can, you know, look at my biography, you don't have to look too hard to see that that did not happen. <laughs> I uh, failed my first year at RMC. And I uh, ended up having to switch to the uh, humanities program in order to retain my, my status at the college and found political science, again, almost by accident frankly never looked back and it was probably the best decision I ever made, but it was one that was forced upon me and I never would have made on my own. So this idea of sort of seizing opportunities has become, you know, almost my life story. So the military enabled that for me. It provided me the the left's and right of arc I needed to to sort of navigate that. I I always joke that had I gone off to McMaster, which was my second choice at an RMC not worked out, I would have either been a miserable engineer having taken seven years to get through it, (laughs) or I'd probably be back home living my parents' basement to this day. Because it just I, I needed that structure of the military. But I think sort of when I think of some of the more formative experiences, certainly notifying soldiers, uh, probably the one that sticks out in my mind the most is when I when I had to notify my my own company of of three soldiers that had died uh, in our in our in our rotation in Afghanistan and sort of pulling the whole crew together and filling them in on what had happened and, and sort of leading the company through that. That was that was challenging. Uh, something that I think about every day. And it's one of the reasons why I make such a big deal out of. The leadership component to my, my students is that uh, this is something that very quickly will become very, very real for a lot of them. And it'll be real in different ways. It won't be my experience, but the idea of leadership challenges and the and, and how your soldiers will look to you. And, you know, there you are, you know, 22, 23 years old. That's when when I first commanded a rifle platoon. The incident that sort of sticks in my mind, I just turned, I was uh, 29 years old as a company second in command. My boss was on his three week break, so the company was in my hands. And here I have 120 soldiers looking to me for, for guidance. And for, in that particular moment, a little bit of comfort too. Uh, so it was pretty, pretty heavy stuff, to say the least.
0: You have to acquire professional maturity quite fast in, in that context, I presume.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think that's a good way to put it. And uh, if that's something that I can inculcate in my students in the classroom, it just sets them up for, for success going forward.
0: And, and did those uh, memorable moments contribute to your desire to pursue a PhD? Because I think it's a rather atypical Track for a military officer to take a break and pursue doctoral studies. So, what was behind this decision in your case?
2: Uh, a, a few things. It's, it's um, academics has always been something that I've enjoyed. I remember. About two or three years after graduating from RMC, I was sitting at home. I think coming back from an exercise or something, but I was just you know, had some time, so I picked up a book and started reading. And I found the books I was gravitating towards after a couple of months of this were, were books that would find themselves on a graduate reading list. And I figured, well, if I'm just reading this stuff for fun, I may as well get some credit for it. And after my deployment to Haiti, I, I started looking at opportunities for graduate school. Looked at law school, terrified me. Didn't like the idea of standardized tests and the LSAT, so I went somewhere else <laughs> and ended up looking at the curriculum of you know whether it was business school, uh, teaching college or any other sort of grad you know post you know, postgraduate opportunities and settled on political science because it was the one that I, I actually found I enjoyed the most I wouldn't you know I, the courses sounded interesting and so I, I got into a graduate program at the University of New Brunswick part-time and it went well and uh, my supervisor at my at the master's level for me he kind of put the it was David Bedford over at UNB Kind of put the bug in my ear but thinking, you should think about a PhD sometime. That might be something you want to do. And I I saw this prospect of, because I knew that the military would sponsor every now and then senior military officers to go and get a PhD to come teach at RMC afterwards. And I, I thought, well, that'd be an interesting objective. I thought it was no way in hell I'd ever get it. And then after Afghanistan, for a variety of reasons, you know, I had a small, a young family that I was trying to start and things like that. And and to be honest, I sort of saw where my military career was going if I sort of followed the, the beaten path. And it wasn't really speaking to me
1: mm-hmm. in the
2: same way that some of these opportunities with a PhD were. So I, I took the dive and, and or took the jump and, and, and left for it and got into RMC's War Studies program and got the sponsorship and, and was, you know, bid farewell by my unit and haven't really looked back. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to do that and spent, you know, what's effectively the last 10 years working in this environment of researching and teaching, reflecting upon the use of force in the Canadian context internationally and then transmitting that to my students, hoping to, to shape the next generation of military officers. But no, it's not a normal path. And because of that, there are costs for it. But they're ones I went into uh, willing to bear with eyes wide open. And uh, certainly don't regret anything that I've done. This, this has been a fantastic opportunity. The fact that I've been able to publish and can talk about it now with you, this is all great stuff. 20 years ago, if you pulled me aside in basic training and said, hey, this is what you're going to end up doing, I would have <laughs> laughed in your face.
0: <laughs> well, I'm very glad that you decided to go down this path because I, I found a friend and a collaborator so i'm, I'm very happy so to have you in in this kingston network I can't help but to think about the stuff we've done together, now that I say this, and and this includes an upcoming edited volume. Actually, it's out, because I received the email announcement from McGill-Queens University Press, but this latest book, Transhumanizing War, is something else that we've done together that's uh, finally come to fruition. Do you want to do a shameless plug as a parting thought?
2: (laughs) Sure, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's a book that, again, fills, I think, a A huge gap in defense policy discussions, which is, you know, what do we do about all this really cool, sometimes scary uh, technology that's coming online that you you see a lot of it in the rehabilitative sciences with respect to prosthetics and and things like that. But it's becoming more and more prevalent now when you start looking at augmentation of of soldier performance. And the stuff that's been written in the past has tended to either be very alarmist, or, you know, sort of basically saying like, hell no, we don't want to touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole. You think of all the science fiction dystopian movies that, that touch it, that's sort of where they're going with it. Or it's really, really technical. And it's just talking about what can be done as opposed to what we should do. So you've either got this sort of ethical backlash or this technical sort of navel-gazing sort of look almost. Um, and so, again, we, you and I, we remember we talked about this at an ISA conference we were in afterwards. thinking, so thinking what's the next bound? What's our next project? And we both settled on this. Because I'm a giant science fiction geek, so this was right up my alley, and I, I loved it. And again, we did the same model we did for going to war and for, for Culture and the Soldier, where we, we pulled together a, as diverse a team as we could. Got folks that are doing ops research, defense research out of DRDC, as well as down in the United States through Arctic. And we've got uh, military officers, we've got academics that have looked at this, ethicists that have looked at this from Canada, the United States... We've got perspectives from Germany, France. It's a very, very well-rounded book in that respect that really, I think, blazes some new ground and only just scratches the surface of this question of the individual implications of this accelerating technology that we find ourselves in this, this environment of accelerating technology. And this has really kick-started a, a new area of research for me personally uh, that I found endlessly fascinating, which is what does that mean now for the experience of war and conflict at the soldier level, but also for how we make decisions about whether or not to use force abroad. So yeah, super excited this book is coming out and um, we'll, we'll see how it does.
0: Mm-hmm. And we had a great partner as well in Stéphanie Bélanger yeah. who co-edited the volume with us because uh, she's been so central to Simvar, the Canadian yeah. Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research. And that angle is very important for the topic of human performance enhancement because it's not just about augmenting the soldiers so that they're, they can perform their, their duties, but it's also about understanding what the health ramifications might be and what the obligations of the military might be to those individuals after their career, uh, once they transition out of the military and and reintegrate into society. So there are a lot of aspects to this question as well. And I think the the book does a fairly good job at, at covering the range of it.
2: Yeah, it's one of the things I tell my students every chance I get is, you know, I, I, I say to them and they, they, they kind of chuckle and we talk about it and then they get it. And I say to them, I hope all of you quit the military one day, you know, and they kind of look at me kind of funny. I was like, well, what do you mean, sir? Why are you saying that? It's like, well, I'll think about it, right? Like, I, I really hope you all at one point hang up your uniform and go do something else because the alternative is is pretty, pretty horrible. And so this idea is, is, is really central, I think, to the book and to this whole project. And certainly it's the way in which I, I view even teaching. You know, this is one step. Uh, it's one that we become incredibly invested in and have to do to the best of our abilities. But at one point we all one day want to not be soldiers. And I think that's something we really have to have to keep in mind, especially when we start thinking about enhancements and, and augmentation to soldier performance.
0: I will add that one too to the show notes, along with your brand new edited volume, Culture and the Soldier. And because we can't have splashy book launches right now, yeah. I'm glad we had the opportunity to have this conversation on that yeah, rhythm. Me too. And I've been wanting to have you on for so long because I know if there was someone who was rooting for a podcast like this one, it was, it was you. <laughs> so thank you for listening from the beginning. I was providing no helpful no, tips and guidance. And thank you for being such an amazing colleague and friend.
2: Well, same with you, Stephanie. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. And I hope we'll have you back as well in the future.
2: I look forward to it. Stay safe.
0: Stay safe.
1: On uh, this week's r and I've got some serious stuff and then some not so serious stuff. So let's talk about the serious stuff first. Peter Jackson, the Hollywood director who did Lord of the Rings and other stuff, produced a World War I documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, which took old World War I footage and also oral histories from soldiers who fought in World War I. And turned into a colored documentary and the color is actually pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's pretty pretty good. And it helps to sort of show what World War I was like. And we really don't have as much understanding or coverage of World War One as we do World War II and more recent wars. And so I think this documentary is very powerful. It's very informative. It's very moving. It's very sad, as the war itself was just, you know, just so awful. But I do recommend it. Maybe watch it in pieces rather than going through the whole thing all at once. The second Piece I want to recommend is They Called Us Enemy. It's a illustrated, well, it's basically a comic book book, graphic novel about life and internment in the United States during World War II. I know much more about the internment experience of in World War II in the United States than in Canada, but I think that there's much to be gained from from this book. It may not really give us a lot of insights about how it worked in Canada, but it might give us a glimpse. But it certainly covers a part of American history that has not gotten as much coverage as it should. So I wanted to raise that. And the third thing, to get your mind off of all of the badness and destructiveness in, in the world, my wife and I have taken as a regular Netflix hit, The Floor is Lava. It's a reality TV show game where it has groups of people try to cross a room covered in red liquid where they have to use various obstacles to get across. And each week there's, or each episode, there's a different set of obstacles. And it's fun watching people do it. It's fun watching them fail. It's fun watching them succeed. It's just very, very silly. And I think at, in this time, we need silly diversions and distractions. So that's my recommendations for this week. Make sure to wash your hands. And now that it's the law, wear a mask. Keep your distance and try to stay sane in these very difficult times. Be well. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at cdsnrcds or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.